The following is based on a true story. In the year 1923, off the coast of England, a chilling incident sent shockwaves through the nation. It all began when a Royal Air Force pilot found himself in the most peculiar of predicaments. Our story unfolds with a crashing plane, its cold metal frame sinking into the frigid waters. Mayday, mayday, I'm going down. The pilot's distress call echoed through the airwaves, but what followed would astound the world. Extra, extra, read all about it. Gremlins blamed for downed plane. As the story unfolded, newspapers buzzed with headlines and curious onlookers gathered to hear the astonishing tale. It was gremlins, I tell ya. They followed me. The pilot's shocking revelation sent shivers down the spines of those who heard it. But the strangest part was yet to come. It was the night before my flight, you see. I was in the pub having a pint or two. The pilot's memories drifted back to that fateful evening when the extraordinary had unfolded. And then, out of nowhere, they emerged from a beer bottle. Little creatures, no taller than my hand. The atmosphere grew eerie as the pilot recounted the events. They tormented me all night, those little devils. Laughing, causing havoc. The audience could hardly believe their ears, but the pilot's tale grew even more bewildering. In the morning, they followed me to the plane. I couldn't escape them. As the pilot spoke of these mysterious beings, whispers seemed to fill the air and the tension rose. They messed with the controls, the navigation equipment. It was madness. Panic engulfed the cockpit as the bizarre events unfolded, leaving the pilot with no choice. I had to ditch the plane in the sea just to escape them. And so, dear listeners, the pilot's harrowing flight came to an end, leaving behind a mystery that would baffle the world. Little people from a beer bottle, a bizarre tale etched in history, forever to be known as the unexplainable flight of 1923. I'm Dr. J, retired demon hunter and knower of things, and this is The Real Demons of Pop Culture. It burns! Oh, it burns! They're coming to get you, Barbara. Bright light, bright light. Well, Lucille, you sound excited for today's episode. I love gremlins. Me too. How you doing? Not too bad. I have a nagging headache. It's really knocking on my noggin. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Lucille. I appreciate that. I'm very excited to be here, though. You can watch myself and Lucille talk all things pop culture on our short videos. They're on TikTok, Instagram. Don't forget YouTube shorts. All the links are in the show notes. And while you are there, check out the many ways you can support the show. Yes, we are listener-supported. By the Real Demons of Pop Culture coloring book. Speaking of that, I would like to thank our listeners who recently supported the show. There's Kevin, who got the Real Demons of Pop Culture coloring book. Thanks so much, Kevin. Daniel, who, you know, left tips, bought the uh, merch. I think it was the Drink Beer Summon Demon shirt, which is one of my favorites. Oh, that's a good one. It really is. Thanks so much, Daniel. Deagle, deagle, deagle. What? He gets it. Yeah, so I want to make sure everyone knows we appreciate each and every one of you. If you would like a shout out, then just grab something from the show notes and I'll shout out. Not sure how to support the show? You can leave a tip, whatever you can afford. 
Yes, Lucille, we appreciate each and every one of our listeners. And now it's time for the magic number. I'm feeling extra psychic today. That's probably because of your headache. Seriously? Not very nice, Dr. J. Lucille, let them know how the magic number works. Here's how it works. Dr. J will count down three, two, one. There will be a bit of silence whilst Dr. J is thinking of a number between one and 50. Write down the number you think he is thinking of. He will reveal the number at the end of the episode. And if you get it right, you will have an extra special magical day. If you get it wrong, it will not be a bad day. It just will not be extra special. I hate that part. I don't make up the rules. The tarot cards do. Ready? Let's do this. Three, two, one. Okay, write that number down and I'll reveal it at the end of the episode. Fingers crossed. Really, Lucille? Fingers crossed mentally. Okay, then. Good luck. Thank you, Dr. J. Lucille, do you know what the three rules are if you are gifted a mogwai? According to the movie, there are three rules. Avoid bright light, don't get them wet, and don't feed them after midnight. Yes, yes, yes. So Joe Dante's Gremlins is the pop culture example that I picked. Out of all the movies in which small creatures wreak havoc, why Gremlins? Well, I'd argue, how can it not be Gremlins? Just look at this list of movies that exist as a direct result of Gremlins' success. There was Ghoulies, Critters, Spookies, Munchies, The Gate, Hobgoblins, Trolls, Trolls 2, which is supposed to be like the worst movie ever, but it's great. They call it the best worst movie. The list goes on and on. So then Gremlins was the first. Well, not exactly. There was Don't Be Afraid of the Dark in 1973 and The Boogins in 1981. I think that's how it's pronounced. But they never had the success that Gremlins had. And most people never even heard of those movies. What makes Gremlins a pop culture masterpiece? Well, it all starts with writer Chris Columbus. And he would go on to write Goonies, Home Alone. He would direct the Harry Potter films. So this guy's massively talented. Okay, so this guy, Chris Columbus, clearly a fake name, just came up with gremlins. Sort of. So he was living in Manhattan in the 80s, which was not nice like it is today. New York City was kind of a scary, dirty place. And he lived in a loft in Manhattan. And when he would sleep at night, his arms would like kind of hang off of the bed. And he would wake up in the middle of the night because something brushed against him his hands. OMG, what was it? Mice, rats, rodents. Ha, ha. I hate rodents. Well, he thought it was horrifying having these little creatures run about. He thought correctly. So the rest was history? Well, hardly. He wrote the script, which was a hard R rating. How so? Well, for starters, Billy's mom had her head cut off and it rolled down the stairs. (laughs) Oh, oh my... God. And then the gremlins ate Billy's dog. No, not Barney. And there's this great scene in which the gremlins go into McDonald's, they eat all the people, and they leave the food. Okay, that's genius. This is such a different film. Not gonna lie, I think I want to see this version of gremlins. Yeah, I agree. How did it go from Manhattan mice to gremlins? Well, Chris Columbus's father would work out in the front yard on cars and something goes wrong, he would always blame gremlins. And combine that with Chris going into Chinatown in New York City because the food was cheap and he was a starving artist, he would see these little stores selling interesting things and he got this idea of 
maybe getting some kind of odd pet in a store. Clever. He picked up a Chinese English dictionary and looked up the word for devil, and it was mogwai. Mogwai. It also means demon or gremlin at this point. The real mogwais of pop culture. That has a nice ring to it. Now, meanwhile, on the other coast, Steven Spielberg is putting together Amblin Entertainment. He's got a couple other people working with him. They're looking for new projects to get off the ground. And he reads the script for Gremlins. And he thought, man, this is sort of a real devilish comedy horror movie. And the rest is history? No. So Spielberg calls Chris Columbus. And what will become kind of a theme in the making of this film, Columbus's roommate was like Steven Spielberg's on the phone. And... Columbus was like, yeah, whatever. No, it isn't. He didn't believe it. He gets on the phone. He's like, all right, who is this? Don't tell me he hung up on Steven Spielberg. No, he didn't hang up. Luckily, Spielberg was able to convince him that he was who he said he was. That's a close one. Yeah, who knows if we'd even have gremlins if he did hang up. So Spielberg tells Chris, hey, come on out to L.A. And the rest is history. No, do you have any concept of how long it takes to make a movie? I guess not. Okay, but explain to me how it went from an R rating to a PG rating. Well, Spielberg convinces Chris that it needs to be audience-friendly. And that's how we end up with a PG rating. But wasn't there some kind of stink over it being rated PG? You know your history, Lucille. Yes. Parents were kind of upset that they took their kids to see this movie. It was a Spielberg production. Everybody's thinking E.T. They take their kids and, you know... It's a little bit intense for these kids. That, plus Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, made these parents lose their minds. And that's how we got PG-13. These parents just thought, hey, we need something between PG and R. So we have Gremlins and Indiana Jones to blame for that. Got it. So it was also Stephen who came up with the idea to keep Gizmo nice and cute. Because in the original script... Gizmo turns into Stripe. By keeping Gizmo good, Billy has a sidekick and the audience has a gremlin to love. Then Joe Dante gets involved. How did that come about? Well, Joe Dante made two films before Gremlins, and it was Piranha and also The Howling. Now, Steven saw Piranha. Now, I loved this movie as a kid, but I was not aware of like directors and things when I was watching Piranha. I just loved that movie. So Spielberg felt Piranha was probably the best ripoff of Jaws that was made. He sends the script to Dante. And just like Chris Columbus, Dante didn't buy that Spielberg was sending him a script. He thought it must be the wrong address. He's like, you know, go find out who this is supposed to belong to. And just like with Columbus, he realizes it really was meant for him. Spielberg feels that Dante is going to give it this sort of dark side of Norman Rockwell feel to the movie. And the rest is history. Well, they still had to make the movie. And that came with all kinds of problems. And there's this story where they tried to use monkeys as gremlins. All right, we're going to try to use this monkey as the gremlin. So I want you to just put the monkey over there and put on this gremlin mask. And action. Oh, man, he's shitting everywhere. Somebody get the monkey. Get the monkey. And cut. All right, this was not a very good idea. So the monkey didn't work out. And luckily, they got Chris Willis, who was the man behind the gremlin puppets. And even though 
there was a lot of issues with the puppets and there was a lot of things they had to do to get the movie to work. It eventually did work. They then had to cast this and they had Zach Galligan as Billy and Phoebe Cates, who I love, who I love, who I love, who I love. Dr. J, wake the hell up. And I actually met Zach Galligan at a convention and asked him, what was it like to work with Joe Dante? He's great. He's super laid back. Very cool. Very calm. Knows exactly what he's doing. He's a good guy. So was this another movie you saw in VHS? Well, I actually saw the movie in the theater on its initial release, which was the same day Ghostbusters had its initial release. Damn, that's a hard choice. Now, it really wasn't a hard choice for me, even though I think Ghostbusters is a great movie. I am not one of those hardcore Ghostbusters fans who dresses up as the Ghostbusters at conventions. I think it's a good movie, but I do not get upset when they touch those movies like I would when they destroyed Star Wars and made the prequels and things like that. I don't know what it is, but there is something familiar about the little town in Gremlins. There is something familiar, and that would be the set. Now, they used the same set that they used in Back to the Future. Using a Hollywood studio set was on purpose because that was Joe Dante's idea. If you had these puppet gremlins shooting in a real-world environment, it wouldn't really match. But shooting them on a Hollywood backlot gives it that sort of match of fantasy that he wanted to create. Now it all makes sense. The same backlot. So the movie comes out, does gangbusters, and... The rest is history. You got it, Lucille. For Gremlins 2, uh, the studio was trying to get it to happen, but they just couldn't get it to work. And if you go and listen to the podcast, This Is Some Scene, you can listen to the entire interview with Joe Dante. But here's what he said about how he got Gremlins 2. I'm one of the uh, people that tend to like the sequel more than the original. Oh, I, I prefer the sequel because, you know, the original was, uh, I, they use the word work for hire, where, you know, they hire you to do somebody else's idea, which, you know, I was happy to do because I liked the idea. But then when they finally came to me and said, you know, we've been working on trying to make a sequel for years and we can't figure out how to do it, so if you do it, we'll let you do whatever you want. And then I thought, well, the way to do this is to try to make sure there'll never be a Gremlins 3 by making <laughs> making fun of the first picture. And all right. the things that were all the silly rules and things that we, you know, had to put in to make it work, and um, and just build on all the all the stuff in the first movie and try to top it. And you know, we had more money and more time, and the technology had changed over the past five years. We were able to do a lot more with the puppets that we could never have done in the first movie, um, right. and make them talk. And you know, and it was it was really a lot of fun. And they left me completely alone. I mean, they they, they yeah, weren't that crazy totally about fun. it when it was done, but they still they did they did leave me alone. So that little opening radio drama I did in the beginning of the show? Yeah, I forgot about that. How the boot swaggle does that fit into all this? That is the origin of the gremlin, and we're going to get into that now. Reports of gremlins coincided with the advent of aviation. I mean, they were blamed for everything. When something broke, especially if it was mysterious, gremlins did it. Example. Do you know who Charles Lindbergh was? 
Wasn't he the dude who flew a plane across an ocean? Yes, he flew directly from New York to Paris in 1927, the longest solo flight in history at that time. He also had his baby kidnapped. Wait, are you going to tell me Gremlins kidnapped his baby? No, but someone should make a movie about that. I'll get right on it. As Lindy soared through the skies, he wasn't just sharing his cockpit with a trusty compass. He was mingling with mystical creatures straight out of a fantasy tale. These otherworldly beings weren't your typical flight companions. They were something out of a ghostly dream. They had a knack for popping up when Lindbergh least expected it. But here's the twist. Despite their eerie appearance, they were surprisingly chatty and friendly. Friendly? Yep. Lindbergh's gremlins were actually friendly creatures. Who would have thunk? While most people painted the creatures to be troublemakers, Lindbergh had a different story to tell. These were transparent creatures, and they weren't causing any mayhem. They were more into mischief of the magical kind. So what Lindbergh said is that these beings seemed to have one foot in the spirit world and one foot in ours. And during his little flight, they didn't just exchange pleasantries, they dished out some serious mystic knowledge. That goes against everything that has been said about gremlins. Were they not troublemakers? Yes, they were troublemakers. And there's a reason that they were blamed for things. And the reason is? Well, assuming that these creatures weren't being released by Nazis. Nazis? Put away your tinfoil hat, Lucille. It was revealed after the war that German pilots were also facing the same menacing creatures. Holy cannoli. But as I was saying, conspiracy theories and supernatural stuff aside, the scientific explanation would be hallucinations from long flights. I don't know about that. All these pilots hallucinating in the air? Just seems like there are too many reports to chalk it up to long-distance tripping. Well, you have a point. People have been seeing little mischievous creatures for centuries. And I'm not going to dive deep into the history of fairies and goblins, but there are a lot of similarities between fairies, goblins, and gremlins. But you aren't going to talk about that? Now, I feel like sometime in the future, there'll be a better episode to dive deeper into fairies and goblins. So you're just going to have to wait for that. But all I want you to know is that people have been seeing little creatures forever. You are so weird. Have gremlins ever killed anyone? Yes. So there's this story with a pilot named Chris Jarrett. So he was flying a night mission to Germany with his crew when all of a sudden one of the Lancaster bombers engines failed. This was immediately after they had entered French airspace. And as he was trying to gain control of the plane, all of the three other engines failed simultaneously, which is totally unexpected. Jesus, what did he do? So Chris realized they're carrying a load of bombs. They got gas. And so he opened the hatch at the front of the plane and jumped off to safety, leaving the plane to crash with the rest of the crew on board. What? Now the whole incident was blamed on gremlins. No, just no. That's just wrong. People died. Why wouldn't they investigate the cause instead of blaming gremlins? Morale. Morale? Morale. So according to the author and historian Marlon Bressy, morale among the RAF pilots would have suffered if they pointed the finger of blame at each other. 
it was far better to make the scapegoat a fantastic and comical creature than another member of your squadron. These stories are unique to pilots. How does it go beyond that niche group? So yeah, this was pretty much myth among pilots. And how did it get out? Roald Dahl. The Charlie and the Chocolate Factory author? Yep. He wrote a children's book in 1943 called Gremlins. How did he hear the stories? Well, he was an RAF pilot, so he knew the stories firsthand. Whoa. Do you think the Oompa Loompas were inspired by Gremlins? Not sure. But he eventually had a deal with Disney to make an animated movie based on his book. But I don't really think it came to fruition as he would have hoped. Did governments ever get involved or was it ignored? The British government definitely got concerned about all the sightings of gremlins by the Royal Air Force pilots. I bet they did. Nobody wants hallucinating pilots flying their planes. They got so concerned that they started offering official advice of how to deal with these creatures. And one measure they had in place to make sure the planes were designed with round edges. That way, it would not give any anchoring point for the creatures to cling onto the planes and cause havoc. Maybe they really are real. Hmm. There was even official documentation in the military written by Gremlorist Percy Prune. She sounds fancy. According to the documentation, Percy gave the other soldiers the descriptions of the gremlins, a list of their exploits, a guide on how to distract and placate them, plus another guide on what to do in order to avoid accidents when confronted by them. And what does Percy Fancy Pants Prune say you have to do? Well, according to Percy's documentation, if you're like super confident and arrogant, it would attract the creatures to the planes. So basically, don't be cocky. Eventually, gremlins moved on past just airplanes, and they would be blamed for any kind of issue with machinery. Isn't there a story about families being terrorized by gremlins? Yes, this is pretty bizarre, but this, the, the Taylor and Sutton family claimed that they just finished dinner and they were attacked by strange glowing creatures. Both families described the creatures as having disproportionately long arms, being about two to four feet tall with claws at the end of their long arms, which does sound like gremlins. They sound just like the ones in the movie. The reason why the gremlins in the movie gremlins had these long arms and short feet was for the puppetry. They needed rods to move the arms, so they had to be longer to actually do what they needed to do. And in puppets, it's really hard to do legs. That's why you usually don't see them, and that's why the legs are short. Let's talk about gremlins in pop culture. Gremlins are all over pop culture. Now, of course, in 1984, they were toys and posters and everything you could want. And actually, I believe there's more gremlins, toys, and figures and all that stuff out today. I feel surrounded by all the gremlins you have in the office here. But I digress. What movies have gremlins? Hotel Transylvania has gremlins in it. The gremlins were even in the Lego Batman movie. Space Jam and New Legacy had gremlins. Now, Twilight Zone is a very famous gremlin episode. Now, the original episode has William Shatner on an airplane, and he sees a gremlin out the window tearing the plane apart, and he freaks out. Then they made Twilight Zone the movie in 1983, and they redid that episode, and it was John Lithgow who played the William Shatner part with the gremlin on the wing. And just last year, Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai, an animated series just came out. I don't know. Was it on HBO? I think it might be on HBO. 
Very cool that that came out. And I mentioned all those other movies in the beginning where we have Hobgoblin and Critters and Ghoulies. They just went on and on and on. Gremlins are in video games. There's comic books. And actually, there was a 1985 video game for the movie Gremlins for the Apple II. And it was made by Atari, which is uh, interesting. And now it's time for Buffy did that. Hello, I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And yes, Dr. J is correct. I did do this. All right. I looked and looked. And when it comes to the actual TV series, I don't know if Buffy really did Gremlins. And the closest thing I can think of is an episode called Fear Itself. It's the fourth episode of the fourth season. And the monster is Gaknar, who is a very tiny demon. The reason why I'm choosing this one is because basically the story, there's a frat party. And prior to this Halloween episode, in a different season, which is another great episode, the cast of Buffy, whatever costume they were wearing, they turned into. So in this episode, they kind of hint to that. They're all going to this Halloween party, and there's this weird symbol that one of the frat boys is painting up stairs in the frat house, and blood gets dripped on it, basically releases Gaknar, who makes the entire house become a truly haunted house with, like, everything horrible happening. Everybody's running around and screaming. It's really crazy. And then they finally figure out how they got to bring this demon into this world. And when they do, it's only like a couple inches or something like that. And Buffy just steps on it. Very funny, great ending. And it is a small demon who wreaked havoc on people. So that's the closest. Now, if you're a Buffy fan and you know of an episode that you would consider Buffy fighting goblins or gremlins, let me know. You can join us at the School of Dark Arts Facebook group. It's a free group. Everything's in the show notes. Let me know if you think you have a better choice for this week's Buffy episode. And now it's time for the magic number. The magic number is seven. Damn. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, share it with a friend you think might like it. Lucille, do you have anything to say? Not sure how to support the show? You can leave a tip, whatever you can afford. For the next two weeks, Lucille and I will talk all about gremlins and pop culture on our short videos. So go find us on our social media pages, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Bye-bye. Be sure to follow me on TikTok at James Ippolitti. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. The Real Demons of Pop Culture is a Gorilla Delphia production.